Hey folks, Jared here. Today I'm joined by my friend Commander Ike Harris and we'll be discussing his proceedings article on the Surface Navy's maintenance culture. This episode was edited and produced by Joshua Groover. We recently conducted our SimSec forum for authors and readers in conjunction with the Center for Naval Analysis. You should be able to find a link on our main website and see a few of our great contributors presenting their work as well as answering some audience questions. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. Today, my guest is Commander Ike Harris, and we're going to discuss his recent proceedings article, Change the Surface Navy's Maintenance Philosophy. So thanks for coming on, Ike. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background, please? Yes, I'm a pretty standard SWO. I've done um, tours in uh, San Diego, Mayport. Uh, my department tours were in Norfolk, as well as my command tour, XOCO of uh, Ramage. Uh, most of my other uh, short duties have been in, Pen- in the Pentagon, either in OPNAV or in Joint Staff. So um, lots of good SWOness. Thanks. And as a reminder, all the views today are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we may be otherwise associated. So we're going to jump right into your article here. And you started on a really upbeat note talking about the striking difference going from a baseline five flight one DDG, the USS Cole, in your first department head tour to a baseline nine ship for your XOCO ride. Before I ask you what was so different about those two, uh, I'll just point out is that Ramage is actually hull number 61, Cole is 67. She actually went to an older ship the second time around, but with a significantly upgraded combat system. So what was so different about the about the combat system when you reported on board Ramage? So I would say when I, you know, really when I got to Cole, she was already, you know, dated. I would, you know, she was a 539 uh, baseline when I got there and um in 2012, so she'd been around for several years. She had gotten a little bit of an upgrade uh, when she uh, after the bombing, but for the most part, was still you know a pretty early on flight one. Uh, Ramage, uh, same thing, if not older. I had some friends, shipmates, that were on Ramage when I was a, a department head. Uh, very similar setup. When Ramage went through the midlife upgrade, she got a significant uh, change to her. The, not only combat systems load, but a lot of the hardware that goes into the Aegis baseline got replaced with, at the time, you know, probably four years ago now, uh, top of the line computing power that was available. So um, significant reduction in just the size of everything, as well as the computing power. But it also allowed for a lot more uh, efficiency and ergonomics inside the combat system. So previously, you know, with the 539 baseline, uh, you had consoles that were doing specific uh, warfare areas that were fairly uh, limited to that warfare area. With the new baseline, you can mix and match flat screens. You can mix and match, you know, where somebody sits. If you have, you know, you have more redundancy, if you lose a console, there's more redundancy in the actual radar itself. You get a lot more uh, uh, interoperability with the BMD suite. In the 539 baseline, when you had a BMD, you had a, you had a significant time change to reload the program into the BMD mode from uh, normal, you know, Aegis mode to BMD with uh, the baseline nine, those, that's, you know, flick of a switch. You know, it really took the Aegis, you know, 539 ship that, you know, the baseline, uh, the flight one uh, into the 21st century. And, and along with that uh, increase in computing power and, and the change in the combat suite itself in Aegis, you had a significant increase to the electronic warfare suite, uh, some new missile systems that are available, 
you know, it's it just, it is really, you know, it should be considered a new class of ship just in, in the difference that, that it brings. When I got there, we deployed shortly after uh, about six months in my tour when I was EXO, we did about of a six month, seven month deployment. We did about four of a half, four and a half of it in the Gulf. Um, and it was uh, substantial, the combat power and the reach that had changed from, from the 539. Yeah, I don't think the uninitiated really appreciates uh, sort of the combat system that you and I grew up with in the early 2000s into the early 2010s and the change. When you talk about the computing power, the, the, the combat information center that you and I would walk into is ensigns, lieutenants, junior grades, and lieutenants was largely running on 1970s and 1980s computing power. It was very, you know, optimized to do one specific thing, uh, roll to roll there. But some of that optimism yielded to reality a little bit when you started working through the maintenance process, uh, probably during deployment and then post-deployment, certainly. But what was your experience attempting to prepare for and execute a selected restricted availability or SRA during your tour? And if you don't mind, if you could explain a little bit what, what an SRA is. Yeah, so I think... Um... To somebody who you know who's not steeped in ship life, you know, an SRA is just a, a shipyard, you know, period. So something that's a lot more, uh, you know, extended than what you would normally do when the ship is, you know, in its normal life cycle, uh, you know, going to sea regularly. So things that happen in our uh, SRA, our selective restricted availability, uh, you know, we we defueled multiple fuel tanks. You know, we had that we were uh, in the water, we were not in a dry dock, so uh, there was some management of liquid load as we were doing different things we had you know in the first half of the sra we had certain tanks uh empty they would get in there and um do preservation inside the tank or cut out steel or whatever they had to do and then we had to shift liquid load to other you know those tanks once they were finished would be filled and we'd we'd, uh, empty out other tanks keep us at a a stable uh, a draft the whole time but uh extremely extensive in terms of the level with which you're getting into especially the you know the hull you know, a lot of the things, well, to, to take a step back even further, you know, we, we start planning SRAs, the SRA previously, right? So really when you're, you know, I think our, our previous SRA from the one that we completed in, in 2020 to 21 uh, was I think 18, 2018. So, you know, and they were, when they were in that SRA in, in 17 and 18, you know, the port engineer and the maintenance team were looking at jobs that, they were going to assign to the next SRA, you know, three to four years later. Uh, and you can think about all the things that happened to a ship in three to four years of, of a very active life cycle, their op tempo now. So there were things that, you know, the ship is constantly doing maintenance. We have continuous maintenance availabilities, which we're doing once a quarter for about three to four weeks at a time. But uh, there are just, there's a level of intrusiveness you just can't get into when the ship is operational. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things we found when you know it kind of struck me as, as concerning when we first started to get in the yards was how much growth occurred in what we thought were some very, fairly small jobs you know they just couldn't find good steel um so you know one of the one of the big you know exemplars of this problem was uh our our chemical protective system which is essentially the ventilation system the ship has to uh, seal in your positive ventilation to keep out uh you know bad chemical agents um, that gets a lot of airflow. Obviously, it's salt, you know, salt air coming from the sea. And um, what was initially supposed to be, you know, five to 10 feet of steel, they ended up cutting about 40 or 50 feet um, of full steel, you know, about an eight foot compartment uh, high, you know, uh, from the deck to the bolt, the overhead, uh, and essentially replacing the entire thing. 
because once they started getting in there, it looked, you know, that you could, where you could see the corrosion uh, was not that bad. However, once they started actually trying to remove the paint and then find good steel to weld to, it just ate up the entire, you know, side of the bulkhead there. And, um, and that, you know, that is, you know, the kind of the point I make in the article is that's absolutely the most expensive way to do it. Because instead of, instead of planning a job for, you know, what could have been 40 or 50 uh, square feet of steel replacement and putting that in the timeline and, and stacking it into, you know, makes sense inside the SRA package and, and, you know, the best time to do it, what they thought was going to be a couple week job ended up turning into about six to eight weeks of, of just full work that really had some, you know, intrusive aspects to other jobs. So uh, that wasn't, you know, and, and that one job in the CPS room was not an aberration. That was, that was, there were several jobs we got into that, that we, uh, there were, there were far worse than we, when we found them. Um, we started digging into them and, and, you know, pulling back some of the paint uh, than we anticipated. So I just don't, at, at this point, you know, the, the, the contracting process is trying to get a stability as early as possible. And we bid out the contracts early so that we can have a stable process to, to bid and then have the contractor come back so that there's, there's more ability to plan uh, doing things last minute. Um, and that kind of has a double-edged sword. You know, the earlier you move the, the contract lock date, the more stuff that the more lifetime of the ship you're not getting to take into account. So how did we get here with our current maintenance process? Like you and I have, you know, experienced this for the last two decades, but how do we get, arrive in 2021? So one, one of the things that um, about halfway through my yard uh, period, uh, it was a 15 month yard cycle or yard period. And then uh, about nine months in, I started kind of jotting down notes and I was like, I can do something with this. I kind of went back to some of the source material to kind of look at, you know, where where the Navy had come from, uh, and how we kind of got gotten that point, not just on Ramage, but as a Navy. And and one of the big things I pulled was the comprehensive review and um, and the Belial report, and uh, both those things, you know, lay out what I think everybody kind of knows. Uh, the Navy had to make some tough choices over, uh, really post two thousand one, and uh, the global war on terror, and and I think those choices were to sacrifice short-term maintenance and, and readiness of the ships, you know, by shortening yard periods to achieve greater uh, availability. Um, so we, you know, we've done various, you know, various plans that have, have reflected that. Uh, but the, you know, the goal was to get more operational time out of our ships because that was what the country uh, demanded for good reason. You know, that also combined with the fact that in 1991, you know, I, I think exact, uh, give or take, you know, we had the highest ship count we had in, you know, since World War II, you know, 600 ship Navy, and we go down to about 300 and stay there right around 2001. So you know, right as the, the country is starting to go into an extended period of combat and really the necessity of having you know, ships at sea, you know, presence around the world for various reasons, various combat operations, uh, we're at the lowest number we've had in a long time, and um, and that has taken a toll. I don't I don't think that was you know I'm not critical of that decision. I think it was done for a lot of good reasons. It just it, the the toll of that 20 years of higher op tempo has kind of come due, especially for the ships that uh, really spent the majority of their life cycle you know operating in that in that environment. So you know to talk about the flight one DGs in particular, you know, the workhorse of the fleet, Burke's commission in '91, so she was already 10 years old by the time 2001 came around. You know, that's that has spent you know twenty years of her thirty year of her thirty year life has been spent at a higher than intended when commissioned op tempo. 
and uh, you know that that goes really for all the flight ones. And that leads right into my next question. So, what were the original assumptions baked into the Burke's plan thirty five year service life, and how have those held up? So um, I tried to look into that to specifically find what some of the assumptions were. I found some and some some documenting documentation about what you know, how ship life was uh, ship life expectations were created. The reasonable man approach. You can say that you know when when Arleigh Burke was ordered in 1985, the world was a very different place. So you know 30 percent of uh, a ship's life was spent deployed. I think it was like actually lower than that. It was in the high 20s, and uh, it was a very stable. You know, uh, uh, workup cycle deployment, six month deployment back in, and that that was a very set cycle of that of that time frame. And SRAs were much more predictable. Uh, you didn't have the extended deployments. We, you know, we hadn't started doing the European phase adaptive approach of BMD presence, which was all the flight ones also. So that kind of you know, Cole, my ship Cole, uh, when I was a department head, did a nine month deployment. You know, Ramage did a couple of back to back deployments uh, at that time. So. Um, we just didn't, we, we anticipate, you know, the, the, the shipyard, the ship planners, Navy anticipated a fairly stable life cycle of uh, workup deployment SRA, uh, which was going to be give or take about two years. And um, at a sh- with a number of ships that was give or take 600 or, or thereabouts. And, and by the time 2001 rolls around, you know, we're, we're about 50% higher on our availability. So we're doing, you know, almost time and a half the uh, deployment time and you know that that's that's a that's a static number so if that that time's got to come from somewhere and most of the time it comes from you know maintenance periods so it adds up how does your typical sra unfold now right? was was the process so give or take like i said about four years three to four years out you're looking at um the big jobs uh there's some organizations in the navy surf Met being one of them uh, that look at um, you know class-wide issues, so t- tanks or, or you know systems that need to be checked based on other ships, other similar ships that have had problems. Those can be looked at a little bit more preventatively. And then you have your you know your specific jobs that you know about, things that you the ship's seen through PMS, put a job in, you know casualties you had. Um, those things are all laid out and approximately. I want to say about six months out or so, the the package closes, and then that it's get it gets planned. Those jobs get planned, and then it gets bid out to um to a to the general shipyards, and the um those you know shipyards come back with uh, a competitive bid. The Navy uh, takes that bid, and then you go into planning. You know, two to three months out from the actual execution, ship rolls in, and and then you kind of go to town. I think the the first 20% is called open and inspect first 20% of the, of the time. There's a number of tanks that are supposed to be open and inspected based on that, uh, that class-wide average. And, you know, ship, shipbuilding specialists from the regional maintenance center come over. They look through those tanks. You know, there's a lot of refueling, defueling, you know, kind of setting up, scaffolding, all these things for the long term. They go on to that very beginning. And then you kind of get into the, the nug work of actually doing a lot of the steel and you know, more of the substantial actual, you know, cutting and grinding of, of pieces of the ship. And the last two to three months, the last 20% or so is really putting everything back together and turning it back on again. And, you know, depending on the, the length of your availability uh, and the extent of one, the, you know, the whole material side, but also, you know, whatever you got in your combat systems, um, that can be, you know, the, the turning things back on can be fairly 
frustrating. It, you know, we, we, for instance, had a, a fairly minor upgrade to the, the Aegis suite and we went up, we didn't change baselines, we went up like a, a increment, but we had our, our entire overhead of the pilot house replaced which is quite extensive and you have, you know, every, everything has to come off of the, the overhead. Um, you know, that's a lot, there's a lot of antennas up there. So we just, you know, the, the things that we sort of had to deal with as we put things back together, got that steel in and then, you know, super um, sensitive now with all the fiber optics and, and other, you know, much more sensitive pieces of equipment you have on now. So small things that just get, you know, bumped or whatever during a repair end up being, you know, substantial, repairs that had to be done in addition to the intended repair. So, so, you know, it, it is, you know, it, it is by far, I think an underappreciated uh, by the community perhaps that uh, how, how absolutely complicated those shipyards are. I think as, as SWOs, you know, we think about, you know, going to sea and, and the training cycle and all these, um, you know, sort of, you know, John Paul Jones kind of, you know, go, you know, taking the fight to the enemy kind of stuff, but uh, which is, which is absolutely uh, critical, but, uh, I think the SRA uh, process and execution is something we probably could use spend spend a little more time on in our training cycles, particularly at the CO and department level, to give a real understanding of you know hey you got to be the shepherds of your equipment and you have to be knee deep in in the job even though you know you may not be there for the whole time or or even we're we're not there for any of the planning cycle uh, if you're the guy on the ship when when the SRA is going down you need to be really knee deep in the details because it's going to be up to the ship force to really make sure that things don't go sideways. Can you explain your argument that uh, the current metric on time on budget incentivizes deferring structural repair? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, there's again, again, it goes back to availability, right? So we, um, you know, we, we have ships to go to sea. Uh, that's, that's the reason you have a ship. You know, we, we try and schedule SRAs so that we have a predictable cycle of deployment following the SRA so that on time, on budget, is you know that Navy has incentivized after some periods of you know fairly extensive uh, shipyard delays to try and get the ships out on time, obviously, but you know and on budget as well. Uh, but the flip side of that is it, it just I think is an unintended consequence incentivizes the maintenance team to look at whether or not things that come up during the SRA should be done during the SRA or can be moved or, or postponed until um, the next SRA. And then you get into, you know, and there, there is technical review that goes on at the, at the regional maintenance center to assist in those decisions and it's, and it's done as a maintenance team. But it is something that is not, you know, in a perfect world, I think you would you would fix everything, right? Uh, but that's not really where we live. You know, it takes, it takes more money to do things um, in situ than it does if they're planned out. Uh, there are, uh, you know, ships are, are very complex and that there are a lot of interrelated systems. So it's not just like you're, you can fix one tank and it has no effect on anything else. So say, you know, interference that has to be removed you know, in an engineering space could be a very extensive repair, even though it's not a huge problem, uh, you know, per se is, you know, what piece of corrosion or something. So it just, it, it pushes, it pushes us to say, Hey, can we, can we just live with this for, you know, another couple or three years until we get the ship back for the next SRA. And, um, I think part of the problem and part of my argument was that I don't think we uh, are fully capturing that risk as a cumulative factor. So there are there are several. You know, when, you, when you start looking at, at you know several repairs for an individual ship, um, you know the repairs you're sort of deferring based on technical uh, advice. 
I don't think anybody ever comes together at the end and says, okay, so we've deferred you know, this set number of jobs and that cumulative risk is X, you know, that maybe this ship shouldn't go do a high North deployment or, um, you know, or just what, you know, some other factors to take into account and say, you know, we think she's safe to go to sea. Obviously she wouldn't be if, if, if we didn't think so, but you know, there's probably some level of, of, operations that we want to limit her to or sea state maybe a reduction sea state uh that we can have her operate in while that's going on or, or you know whatever the case may be based on the actual repair uh that's getting deferred i think i think that's where the navy could do a little bit better to try to just get at you know what it, what is that risk you know and it ends up being you know on the crew to to sailor and i think the crew uh deserves to have that that articulation Let's get into your suggestion then. Uh, what is your proposal for a new philosophy and then how would you operationalize that? So one of the big things that I noticed as part of the upgrades of the, uh, the, the baseline nine, but not, not just with the combat suite, but also with um, the engineering piece and is that everything is computerized now. They're, they're the daily log keepers, you know, the guys that are walking around the spaces, uh, they're taking data off of all kinds of equipment all the time. Uh, the 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 system is producing reams loads and loads of data that are that are uh, monitored systems so i think we've probably reached uh, a level where you could take that data combine it with some other things like deferred work in an sra uh you know manning uh if, if a ship's manning is lower than it should be or maybe if it's higher and then create a, a virtual twin uh that you could model um some of these things and then determine, you know, hey, what is the, you know, what will be the effect if we, if we defer this, or you know, what, what's the cumulative effect when we defer all of these things, or you know, if we're going to have her do a longer time between SRAs, if we're going to shorten this SRA because of cost, you know, I think that uh, would give us a much better uh, picture of where the ship's at. It also would uh, lend to a greater understanding of class-wide issues, uh, and I think from the AI um, at the at the you know, machine learning side, I think there's some, some lessons we could pull from just having that ability to track things in a very granular level, because a lot of that data is already being produced, you know, uh, qualitative measures such as, um, you know, like I said, crew size, you know, deployment time, deferred work, uh, and, and put that into one model to give you a, a much better understanding of where the ship's at. Uh, I think that would be a, a, a quantum leap in the ability to predict uh, what a ship is is currently capable of, and, and what uh, what things you could defer, and what things have to be done right away. I want to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe what you were advocating for was bringing back the readiness squadrons to do some of that work. So, it, yeah. would it, what were the readiness squadrons, and then how do you envision those looking uh, moving forward if we were to bring those back? Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, one of the things that Blau Report had specifically called out was the fact that you had a readiness squadron that was. Um, this responsibility was solely for uh, you know material readiness of, of the surface vessels and its charge. Uh, we combine that with the Desron, and we sort of put two very different hats on that on that uh, that squadron commander. Uh, one, you know, to prepare his staff for for combat as an operational commander as a, of a strike group, so you know, multiple ships at, at a very high level of combat, as well as tracking and um, you know shepherding his ships through uh, a maintenance cycle just the nature of the way our squadrons are structured that means that you may have you know multiple ships at very different parts of the the, the ship cycle ship life cycle uh at a squadron at, at one time 
that could be a good thing based on workload. It could be a bad thing if everybody's you know doing the same, you know, for instance, at one point we had three or four LOAs and inserts all this, you know, right, right one another, right back to back within about a two month period. And that puts a significant tax on the staff. Um, there's just not uh, a level of focus that you can lend to individual ships if you are are trying to both prepare your staff for you know, operational combat and deployments. You know, certainly that's a, that's becoming a, a greater task now with the, the return to great power competition and the higher level warfare that we're practicing on a day to day basis now on our training exercises. You know, that's that's I think where the Desron, at least in my opinion, the Desron should be focused is is really making sure that when the Desron Commodore and their staff deploy, that they're as ready as possible uh, for high end warfare against a, a peer adversary. I think that the challenge and, and readiness is is equal to that challenge of you know great power competition, and I think we should put uh, you know a staff at that level that is also in charge and can really you know focus on the lessons learned and the trends and the history of, you know, ship maintenance that can be garnered when you're doing it as your, as your, as your, as your primary job. Uh, I think that would be a huge step forward uh, because it would give that guy, you know, that, that Commodore or readiness squadron CEO a much greater ability to influence, you know, specific yard periods and have that corporate knowledge that you really just don't get right now because there's, there's, there's stretched within. I think, um, and we've kind of done in in, in uh, Yoko after um, the comprehensive review and the strategic review. That's that's sort of that model as well as down in um, in uh, Mayport uh, with the class run is is a similar thing. We just haven't quite fully implemented it in the fleet concentrations of uh, San Diego and, and North. So, final question here is: You spoke earlier about the need for you know, CEO, department heads, ships company to really focus on and prepare for that SRA, as well as shepherding it through the execution phase. But what's the time commitment for a ship's company to properly plan for an avail? And then what sort of competing priorities did you find as you set up for your own? I think the, um, you know, as COs, uh, part of the COXO pipeline is to go to a TICOM indoc before you actually uh, step on board the ship as an XO. And that that's a fantastic uh, opportunity because it gives you, you know, a lot of the COXO pipeline is sort of coast agnostic. Um, you're, you know, you're doing it in Dahlgren or, or Newport with guys going to, you know, all corners of the of the fleet. But the TICOM Indoc gives you an ability to meet with the people and, and get to know the people that you are going to be interacting with on a day to day basis as an XO and a CO. But I think something similar to that would be very useful for the COs. You know, probably in the two to three months out time frame. I mean, you're, you're you know, but all the ship's company should be fairly familiar with the SRA package, you know, six, eight months, nine months out at least, if not, if not more, more before that. And you, you know, you have your SRA coordinator assigned, you know, probably about a year out. So, so there's a familiarity there, but I, I think really understanding the jobs is different than understanding how to successfully execute the SRA and, you know, ship's life cycle, you know, personal turnover, you know, Really, you want to have the guys that are going to be there for the majority of the SRA really understand what what the ship, what the expectations are for ship force, uh, what the the things that the ship force can control, you know, particularly the CO. You know, that your the CO is a you know, is one of the three you know, between the yard, uh, the re, the RMC, the regional maintenance center, and the, and the ship. Like that's kind of your your main players there. And the ship CO is absolutely, if uh, you know, a vital part of that. 
because it, ultimately it's, it's his responsibility to take the risk of the completed product. So, you know, having somebody that is only there to say, look, you know, we're not going to shortcut this or, you know, I'm willing to live with, I, you know, I think it's a prudent decision uh, if we're going to defer something, but having the, you know, the, the empowerment from the staff, from the Desron, from the, the TICOM to say, you know, I, I just don't, I think we've, we've reached a level where this is too much. I, I felt like I had that. I had, I had to make that call during my SRA to, to kind of push a little uh, harder against the, the RMC and, and, and make sure that we did something in our bilge in, in one of our engineering spaces that ultimately delayed the SRA. But I think it was the right call. And I think ultimately um, some of the, the evidence we found once we opened things up proved that it was, it needed to be done. But um, you know, I, that was something that happened about five to six months into my, S, my SRA. And I, I felt like at that point I had learned enough about the process through the process itself that I had the ability to do that. Uh, I think in a shorter SRA, you know, sometimes three to three to four or five months, you're just not getting the runtime to really understand where you need to inject yourself to make sure that things go uh, the right way for the crew. And I think that's that the TICOM would be, would be better served by having a CO and a crew that is more empowered and more knowledgeable uh, before they go in so that they can really act. You know, they're, they're the guys in the deck place, obviously, on a day-to-day basis. So having the maximum amount of knowledge and, and focus training on that uh, beyond just a safety focus, but really like, you know, what is the, what is the, you know, an RCC, what are, you know, all these sort of contracting you know, jargon that gets thrown around by the people that do it on a day-to-day basis, you know, as a, as a ship's crew coming into that, you just are, you know, every, I'm, I had a, you know, an acronym book that I just kept with me the whole time because there were just so many things I just did not know because I'd never been exposed to them. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Commander Icarus. Uh, I, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? You got any other writing projects we're going to see from you? Well, I have uh, have many uh, strong opinions about many different things, Jared. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, so, I'm intensely familiar. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, uh, right now I um, I'm just back in the Pentagon uh, after uh, my three years at sea. So, um, you know, the OpNav staff is is a bit different than it was when I left. So I'm still trying to um, kind of read through all the you know the joint warfare pubs and all the things we've kind of done in the last. Uh, Three or four years, you know, I would say that we've we've come a long way in the, you know, change from when I was here last to, to now to move from a sort of, you know, near peer competitor to a great power competition, um, and an acknowledgement throughout the staff. So I think that's that's a, a good indication that we're kind of moving in the right direction. And I'm anxious to see where where the uh, the, the Navy's going to go here as we kind of move to a more innovative, more flexible, um, more responsive organization that can deal with you know the speed of our adversaries and the speed of their development well thanks again for joining us to listeners thank you for tuning in we'll see you next time